recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, June 29, 2013. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Tonight we will present part three of our presentation of the essay on German economic policy by Dr. Wilhelm Bauer of the German Institute for Business Research, Berlin, 1939. This was actually a talk which he gave to a group of American professors on German economics, as he said in his introduction in this booklet. After this program tonight, well, where I pray we're finished with this presentation, this booklet will be published in its entirety in the text, along with these three podcasts, probably really tomorrow morning, on the Mein Kampf project at Christoginia.org. The podcasts alone will be available at the main website. The purpose of presenting this essay is to show from original National Socialist documentation that Hitler's Germany was not a Marxist state, but rather it sought independence from all Jewish economic paradigms. It sought freedom from the central banks of Europe. It sought freedom from the Rothschilds of England. They were basically fighting the same fight that the founders of this nation fought in the late 18th century. Adolf Hitler's Germany sought freedom from both Jewish usury-based capitalism and from Jewish Marxism and from all Jewish economic paradigms. Real socialism is an economic paradigm which places the means of production into the hands of the producers. The carpenter owns his own hammer. That's real socialism. A man who produces widgets owns his own factory and has the ability to hire employees to help him produce widgets. Instead that, of international speculators owning his factory. Right. It eliminates speculators. Yet, you know, speculators were cursed in ancient Rome, and they were cursed in National Socialist Germany. Speculators were cursed by George Washington. They were cursed by the founders of this nation. The damned speculators tried to overturn the founding of this nation and destroy it through their speculating against its currencies 240 years ago. We have already discussed the segments of this document concerned with the relationship of business with the National Socialist State, the aims of National Socialist economic policy in general, the regulation of production, capital investment policy, and their policy for business subsidies. This sounds like a planned economy. It is a planned economy. The United States economy, these last 50, 60 years, or, or ever since the New Deal, is basically a planned economy. Communist Soviet Russia was always a planned economy. The only difference is that the United States economy is planned to benefit the damn Jew. National Socialism had a planned economy which would maintain the sovereignty of the German people. Do you have any opening comments? Well, we see this paradigm of capitalist versus communist played out again and again and again in this nation. It's the inside-the-box debate. You can be a capitalist, a socialist, a social democrat, a communist. You can be a libertarian. But the minute you bring in an outside-of-the-box solution, fascism, then the capitalists and the communists who supposedly hate each other, they unite in opposing you. They all can agree. The, um, they, can, they can agree that 
you're wrong, you're evil, and then they'll go back to debating each other. So supposedly they're enemies. They disagree with each other vehemently, but when you come into the picture, they'll all stop disagreeing and arguing and debating to focus on attacking you and running you out of town. And Adolf Hitler understood that capitalism and socialism, or, or, or Marxist socialism, were, were both um, economic paradigms developed by the Jew. Both of them lead to internationalism. Both of them lead to globalism. Adolf Hitler perceived that, that the Marxist and the capitalist were working hand-in-hand hand towards the same end. And that is absolutely true. And, and if you read the Communist Manifesto, I have a, a couple of passages, a couple of paragraphs from it here tonight to present. If you read the Communist Manifesto, you'll find that the Marxists, while attacking and, and criticizing the so-called bourgeois or the Western capitalist, that the Marxists had, had, um, had criticized or, or, or had not really criticized but discussed many of the effects of global capitalism which actually um, had the same results that the Marxists desired. And, and, and they discussed a lot of that, the, the, the destruction of borders, the um, liquidity of labor, that meaning that people could move across borders at their own will, wherever you could find a job, you could go there, but which is the destruction of national character. And, and Marxism and, and global capitalism both work towards that, those same goals, and, and, and even more than that. Well, and... Um, it's very clear, and Adolf Hitler understood that 90 years ago. Today, so-called American conservatives, that's their platform. They seek the same thing. How the hell are they conservatives? It's, and I believe that the Reagan revolution did that. It fooled a generation of people into thinking that conservatism and global capitalism were one and the same. Well, it was all a great deception. The... Full intent of Adolf Hitler's economic policy was to maintain the national character of, of the German people. So what these so-called conservatives today want is a situation where all quote-unquote barriers to free trade are torn down, people are free to come and go as they please, national borders don't exist anymore, so if 400 million Indians want to move here and half a billion Chinamen want to move here, they can move here do our jobs for 5% of what we're getting paid, and then that's just it. We lose the country overnight. And that's what the conservatives are all about. And Marxism sees that as a positive effect of the, um, the proletariat, of the, the coming to power of the proletariat of the working man who's never really in power because the Jewish, the Jewish bankers still maintain control. The Jewish bankers controlled the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had a central bank. That's just about the first thing that... Um, the Bolsheviks did. They instituted the a Bolsheviks central bank. Instituted a central bank, right. Which would seem very odd. If you're a revolutionary and you're just a bunch of peasants and factory workers, I would think a central bank would be something not even on your mind. Right. Essentially, Marxism is a creed and a doctrine whereby the people who adopt it, largely, you know, the white underclass, just commit suicide. It's just a doctrine of white genocide and white suicide. No doubt. No doubt, the destruction of our borders, and as we will see, the, the Marxists also loud, in the Communist Manifesto, the Marxists also loud 
the the um the dissolution of intellectual property rights what which um I, I had discussed last week um, in in a di- a long digression that we offered here I had discussed that the um intellectual property rights of an individual belong to his national community as much as they do to himself because the entire community has a stake in the creation of that individual the the um the grooming of his skills talents and abilities and in making sure that that individual can use those schools skills and talents and ability to to um for, for the for the cause of the greater good in order to create things which is what right well you know the um the end game is to create things to advance society, and the whole society works together towards that common goal, whether any individual realizes it or not. Uh, I mean, the man isn't baking his own bread and, and, and slaughtering his own steer. Well, well, the Marxists in the Communist Manifesto recognize that capitalism, that global capitalism, um, basically can transport intellectual property anywhere, and, and it, intellectual property really doesn't belong to a nation anymore in the capitalist system. Well, that's what we had discussed last week, that it was basically a way that the Jews rob white nations of their intellectual abilities. And Marxism louds that situation because it would promote the same ideas. And we have quotes from the Communist Manifesto tonight in this paper, which will demonstrate that. Well, you know, the Austrian Mises clique, they explicitly state the concept of intellectual property should just not exist. There should be no patents, no copyrights, no trademarks, no intellectual property. And if you invent something, the Chinese should be able to um, see the schematics and blueprints. And if they make one better than yours, then tough luck, the, the market's decided that that they value the better one from China, and that if you want to stay competitive, you need to continue to innovate and make better. Well, well why should I? Why should manner, I? In that manner, capital capital always rules the world. Under right. that paradigm, capital always rules the world, and he who prints the money will be the one who controls capital. Well, why should I innovate and design something if two weeks after I innovate and design it? The blueprints and schematics are going to be accessed because they're publicly available. They'll be accessed by the Chinese and the Indians. They're going to steal, reverse engineer, and copy everything and make it cheaper with cheaper labor costs. And now I, I spent four years inventing something, and I realized none of the benefits. Right. And the That's... nation realizes none of the benefits now because all the production's overseas because they stole the design. No doubt that those people would never have the ability to, to develop the things that we've developed on their own. And we have bought into all these Jewish economic paradigms, which have allowed these people traditionally for millennia, our enemies to, to, to advance themselves to nearly our level by pirating all of our intellectual property. Well, that is the capitalist system. Well, well, right. Well, the capitalism, usury-based capitalism and Marxist communism both result in, in the dominance of the Talmud because they're both um, rife. They're both founded on Talmudic philosophies. So it, it's, it's not for nothing that Marx came from a family of lawyers and rabbis and rabbis who worked as lawyers. No doubt.
Okay, we can proceed with the regulation of raw material consumption, if you will. The third group of measures of government production regulation concern raw material consumption. Almost the whole of German industry is subjected to the system of raw material quotas. The essence of quota fixing lies in the control of imports, which was introduced in 1934 as part of the new plan for German foreign trade. The control is carried out by 27 control boards, one of which has been set up for each branch of industry. Factories which use imported raw materials are only allowed to purchase a certain volume of raw materials abroad. Normally, the basis of the quota fixing is the consumption of a certain month, but the importance of the orders with which, but the importance of the orders which the company has to fill, is also taken into account. Export orders being given special consideration. Apart from well, well, export orders, export orders help the the country maintain the balance of trade. So, if you have to import um, the rubber for a hundred thousand tires so that you could export twenty five thousand cars, well, well, that's fine. That's that that's going to create a positive trade balance. So, so that has to be given special consideration because Germany, a country with no virtually no none of its own real raw material reserves in in so many areas. Well, well, they have to have export orders in order to be able to import raw materials without um, having to sell off assets to foreigners because of a trade deficit. So if they're going to maintain their sovereignty, export orders in manufacturing are, are a very good way to keep their books balanced, right? Well, look at, our, look at our trade deficit now. Because of the trade deficit we've been running, we basically lost our own country. Well, well, yes, because of the incredibly huge trade deficits we've been running with China, China is buying up America. And Chinese people, more and more Chinese people, and, and people don't see this, but more and more Chinese people are showing up in rural communities. And I saw this here in southwest Virginia, and I saw it in upstate New York. In rural communities, in farm communities, people still speaking Chinese buying up property, buying up houses, buying up farms. They're not getting this cash because they worked for 20 years in a damn rice paddy. The Chinese government is flush with, with money and, and, and a, um, a huge – it's the beneficiary of this huge trade imbalance. They could print all the money they need to print to buy up half of America, and they're doing it. They're sending Chinese nationals over here, and oh. they're buying up property – and they're installing these Chinese people in that property. They've bought millions of acres of land across the American West. I know for a fact they bought, I believe, 50,000 acres of land in Idaho, and they were talking about moving thousands of workers there to a factory complex they wanted to create. And it just crossed my mind, you know, let, let's say 5% of China's population moves here in the next decade. That's 75 million Chinamen. That's enough to permanently alter the character and composition in the blood of this nation. It, it would be an irreversible change. Yeah, well, we have three or four generations now of fat, slobby, lazy Americans that love Walmart and buy up all the plastic trinkets and all the other garbage that Walmart sells that's made in China. So, so, so basically, that they, they have, they're flush with, um, with, 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 well, with money that's printed from nothing, but they're flush with, with, with international currency unit credits from 
their trade imbalance with the United States so they could buy up half the country. So we've traded them millions of acres of land in exchange for plastic trinkets that they had gulag labor inmates make. Basically. So we've given away our country for a bunch of toys and crap. Well, well, right. And and I read, um, you know, I have somewhere Wall Street Journal articles, front page Wall Street Journal articles, which basically, and these are probably in maybe 2005, 6, 7 in that area, and these basically gloat about Chinese um, labor factories and how these labor factories are attached to um, dormitories, which house five to 10,000 people, dormitories, and how these dormitories are fully staffed with, with basically inmates, with Chinese laborers who work in these factories, and how these dormitories are um, equipped with things like food courts and things like that, where these laborers spend their money on, on their sustenance, right? And, and it's basically no different, no different at all than a um, than a prison camp with with a a, a factory attached, which slave labor system this country, right? It, it's they're basically slave labor camps, and, and the Wall Street Journal gloated about how efficient and economical they were. Well, that's the Jewish idea for the world, isn't it? That's what the Jews want for the world. There'll be a few million Jews ruling over everybody, and the the goyim will all be slaves. Well, that's the vision of the future. That's definitely the vision of the future, there's no doubt. All right, continuing on. Apart from this system of import regulation, there exist a number of decrees dealing with the use of raw materials. For instance, as a result of the scarcity of wool and cotton, it has been decreed that all wool and cotton cloth manufactured in Germany for the domestic market must contain a certain percentage of staple fiber. Certain products, for example, doorknobs, may no longer be made of brass. In private residential buildings, only a certain amount of construction iron may be used. This system of regulation has been carefully worked out and is not too strictly bureaucratic in its application. In many cases, the usual raw materials must be replaced by new synthetic raw materials, which can be produced without any import. The use of these new synthetic raw materials does not mean a lowering of the quality of the finished product. On the contrary, the shortage of raw materials leads to new inventions and improvements and even brings about, as in the case of Buna, synthetic rubber, a technical progress which otherwise would not have occurred. Well, well right, and, and that's what National Socialism was encouraging, were more similar technical progresses where um, quality implements could be constructed of alternative materials. And, and I mean, that, that's been you know, a goal of, of many capitalist corporations for, for how long? I mean, look at place, companies like DuPont, right? That they try to get everybody to drop cotton in, 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 um, in favor of their artificial materials. But Germany did it by compulsion because they really didn't have the empire that England had or, or the vast land and diverse land area and diverse um, climate that America had where we have a wealth of raw materials. Germany had no raw materials and 80 million people that needed goods to, in order to survive. So, so they stressed innovation and because they, they're, um, that 
their raw materials that their raw materials were so short they only imported what they absolutely needed and and ex, as this says export orders were given special consideration because that would safeguard the trade balance which Germany was concerned about the, the Adolf Hitler understood the importance of the import export trade balance in relation to the maintenance of national sovereignty what which America is totally lost on the United States these last 50 years well, I can't argue with that and we've basically lost our country because of that absolutely now, now in, and and we volunteer ourselves into it I, I mean people uh, our people have have basically cut each other's throats to save a couple of bucks in Walmart yet you know you see a toaster for $30 and, and it's made in Minnesota, and you see a toaster for $12, and it's made in Hong Kong, and 90% of our people will buy that $12 po- toaster, and the hell with their brother. Well, you know, a lot of products just aren't made here. You, you can't find an American-made product. I went into the, a hardware store. Well, well, not now, but I'm talking about the 1960s. This was going on in the 1960s, 1970s, this was going on. And now, of course, you can't find an American-made product because back in the 1960s and 70s, 90% of the people were buying that $12 toaster. And American manufacturing companies can't stay open if they can't sell their goods. Well, I asked the owner of a hardware store, do you have a, a diesel or gas generator made in this country? And he said there aren't any. He said he's, he, he hasn't heard of a company that makes a, a gas generator or a diesel generator here in America. He said they're all either made in China or some in Japan. Right. I, I was looking for a pump for, for the basement at my mother's house a few years ago, and, and um, I could not find a pump made here that, that, that had the requirements that I needed. I had to buy a Chinese pump. It's crazy. Well, it, it's, what, crazy. What, it's suicidal. It seems the only thing made in this country these days are um, pharmaceuticals, fiat currency, and debt. Well, well, basically, I, I mean, it's that there are some mom and pop manufacturers, but they're few and far between. That there are some small manufacturers in, in this country, but if, that that they're scarce. And the and, government and, does everything in their power to run them out of business. Right, and and where there is new manufacturing, it, it's opening in depressed areas, and and wages are are basically um, slave labor wages, minimum wages. Well, you know, okay. if you or I were making, yeah, if you um, were, under these free trade agreements, if you or I were making goods and trying to export them into China, we'd be at a severe disadvantage because there's no genuine free trade. The Chinese would penalize us, and we would have to part with millions of dollars to get import papers, to, to grease palms, to get our goods unloaded at the dock in China, to make sure that we're, our stuff isn't just confiscated or impounded. It's, it's one-sided trade. It's not free trade. Well, well, the one-sided trade is a lot worse than most people realize, and, and that's because of this scenario. Because a lot of the global corporations were behind all of the regulation. We're pushing for all of the regulation in Washington that was implemented through, through these agencies, through OSHA, through the EPA. Global corporations pushed Washington for that. They lobbied Washington for that. Washington passed a lot of that. They funded. They fund the green movement. These global corporations funded all that. Why? Because they wanted to move their corporations. They wanted to move their operations overseas 
and leave a climate in America where competition could not arise. That's why they did it. It boils down to, to, to the fact that the people who, who hold our capital are Jews and they're traitors and their plan is to destroy the West. And they've done it purposely. If you go look at the records, you'll find these global corporations, they financed this green movement. They pushed for all this legislation, this anti-manufacturing legislation in Congress that, that has gone through Congress since the 1970s. They did it because they didn't want any competition arising after they abandoned this nation. It's a, a lot of that has been planned these last 60 years. All right. Would you like to take over for now? Well, well in the second segment of the series, I presented an off-the-cuff discussion which attempted to explain why an individual's intellectual, intellectual fruits belong to the community as a whole as much as it does to the individual. This idea is embedded into the essence of national socialism. However, it is averse to both capitalism and Marxism. From the Communist Manifesto, an admission that both capitalism and Marxism would destroy national character. Note that the Marxists are not truly complaining of circumstances being created by the bourgeois under global capitalism but are rather only observing how those circumstances fit their own plan and how they will be advantageous to their goals. And I'll quote from the Communist Manifesto. The bourgeois, and they mean the, the capitalists, the, the, the upper class capitalists and the merchant class, the bourgeois has, and, and the factory owner class, that class, the bourgeois has through its exploitation of the world market, given a cosmopolitan character to production and consumption in every country. To the great chagrin of reactionists, it is drawn from under the feet of industry, the national ground on which it stood. All old-fashioned national industries have been destroyed or are daily being destroyed. Now, this isn't talking about Soviet Russia. This is a Marxist document. This is talking about France and Germany. This is talking about um, Christian Europe as a whole. They are dislodged by new industries whose introduction becomes a life-and-death question for all civilized nations, by industries that no longer work up indigenous raw material, but raw material drawn from the remotest zones, industries whose products are consumed not only at home but in every quarter of the globe, in place of the old wants, satisfied by the productions of the country. We find new wants requiring for their satisfaction the products of distant lands and climes. In place of the old local and national seclusion and self-sufficiency, we have intercourse in every direction, universal interdependence of nations, and as in material, so also in intellectual production. The intellectual creations of individual nations become common property. National one-sidedness and narrow-mindedness become more and more impossible. And from the na numerous national and local literatures, there arises a world literature. So these are basically Marxists who are, who are lauding the outcome of global capitalism in the middle of the 19th century, right? 
The communists are further, and, and this is a little further down in the Communist Manifesto, a few paragraphs. The communists are further reproached with desiring to abolish countries and nationality. That, that's that, that their claim, right? And, and, and that was one of the charges leveled against them. The working men have no country is their response. We cannot take from them what they have not got. Since the pro now, now this is the Jew. The Jew has no country. That's the damn truth. The Jew has no country, well, and they that they twist that into the statement that the working men have no country. Well, right? the Jews have never had a country because they've never been able to settle down in any one place. They're not interested in settling down and building up a land through their own efforts. They have to anything, move around and latch on to other people. And they're anything but working men. The working men have no country. We cannot take from them what they have not got, since the proletariat must first of all acquire political supremacy, must rise to be the leading class of the nation, must constitute itself the nation. It is so far itself national, though not in the bourgeois sense of the word. Well, if this, if this were to occur, if they became the leading class, then they would cease to be the proletariat class. Right. So Marxism cannot be a proletarian movement. Well, well, of course not. It, it's a Jewish movement. It, it's a Talmudic movement. It, it's a trick to get the, the, the uneducated masses to bend to their will, to overthrow the nobles and the leaders of the nation. That, that was the result of the French Revolution. That was the result of the Russian Revolution. The Jew manipulated the lower classes in, into handing control of the nation to the Jew. National differences and antagonisms between peoples are daily more and more vanishing owing to the development of the bourgeois, to freedom of commerce, to the world market, to uniformity in the mode of production and in the conditions of life corresponding thereto. The Marxist Communist Manifesto desired to dissolve national differences, just like global capitalism has the same goal. That's why Adolf Hitler understood them to be two arms of the same beast. That's why he understood them both to be Jewish in nature. To continue quoting the Communist Manifesto, the supremacy of the proletariat will cause them to vanish still faster. So the, the, the Communist Manifesto recognizes that global capitalism is destroying national character and national borders, and they want to accelerate it, right? United action of the leading civilized countries, at least, is one of the first conditions for the emancipation of the proletariat. In proportion, as the exploitation of one individual by another is put to an end, the exploitation of one nation by another will also be put to an end. In proportion, as the antagonism between classes within the nation vanishes, the hostility of one nation to another will come to an end. Now, now I didn't dig it out, but in Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler talks about the necessity of classes and how classes should be maintained. It should be evident that both capitalists and Marxists would destroy all national boundaries and blend the world into a single race. And, and that's, that, that's the goal on either side of that Jewish coin. Right. right? Their motives are slightly different, but the end result is the same. But, well, absolutely. Not, that their motives are slightly different and their methods are slightly different. Right. The end result is exactly the same. I'd like to read from Mein Kampf, page 46. In response to this, to, to these... Um, stated goals of Marxism and, and how well the stated that the um, how well the effects of global capitalism basically 
um, assist the stated goals of Marxism, because that's what we see in the Communist Manifesto. That's what they're, they're criticizing the bourgeois, but they're louding the results. From Mein Kampf, page 46, Adolf Hitler. The Jewish doctrine of Marxism repudiates the aristocratic principle of nature and substitutes for it the eternal privilege of force and energy, numerical mass, and its dead weight. Thus it denies the individual worth of the human personality. That's absolutely true. It lowers all humans to the same, to the same rank, unless you're a Jew. Impongs the teaching that nationhood and race have a primary significance, and by doing this, it takes away the very foundations of human existence and human civilization. If the Marxist teaching were to be accepted as the foundation of the life of the universe, it would lead to the disappearance of all order that is conceivable to the human mind, and thus... The adoption of such a law would provoke chaos in a structure of the greatest organism that we know with the result that the inhabitants of this earthly planet would finally disappear. Should the Jew, Adolf Hitler, should the Jew, with the aid of his Marxist creed, triumph over the people of this world, his crown will be the funeral wreath of mankind, and this planet will once again follow its orbit through the ether, without any human life on its surface, as it did millions of years ago. And so I believe today that my conduct is in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. In standing, against, in standing guard against the Jew, I am defending the handiwork of the Lord. Adolf Hitler knew exactly what the Jew was up to. Goddard called huh. communism the revolt against civilization. He wrote an entire book on it. Right. And that's what it is. It's not, it's not only the revolt against civilization, it represents the destruction of civilization. Well, well, that's the Jewish goal, is to destroy the creation of God. Adolf Hitler knew it. In standing guard against the Jew, I am defending the handiwork of the Lord. That's a pretty Christian statement. From Mein Kampf, page 125. What we have to fight for is the necessary security for the existence and increase of our race and people, the subsistence of its children, and the maintenance of our racial stock unmixed, the freedom and independence of the fatherland, so that our people may be enabled to fulfill the mission assigned to it by the Creator. The planned economy of National Socialism, therefore, was purposely designed so that German sovereignty would be assured and so that Germany would not suffer an invasion of aliens, which we see in America today and all over the West now. This is most clear in the next part of its economic policy, which concerns the labor supply. Regulation of labor supply. I assume this is your note here. Nothing about flooding the land with Kaffirs and Mestizos. I, I don't think the National Socialist author wrote that. No, no, no. That's my personal note. I, I, I stated in the beginning that my notes are in italics, right? Right. It's, you know, in the United States, we need laborers, right? So, so we just import a couple of million Mexicans. We really just let the guard down at the borders and let the Mexicans import themselves. No, we don't need labor. We need jobs. Right. Well, well, we don't need labor, but corporate America wants you to think that we need labor, that well, white they, people won't work the farms, that white people won't work the factories. 
that that um, Negroes won't work, period, but everybody really knows that. I've had well, hiring managers tell me that they're under orders. You know, they have five job openings. One of them told me that the first person they hired was a white male, so the company policy would not allow them to hire another white male until they had hired somebody who was not white. They weren't able to find a qualified non-white person, so they closed the other four positions, and one person had to do the work of five people. Why not? It's they weren't allowed to hire two white men in a row back to back. Incredible. The the um. So best as best I can tell, there is no labor shortage. There's a job shortage. It's, companies it's have market, hiring policies to dispossess and marginalize white men. If the markets were really free, if the if the markets in America were really free, then every job in the economy would find its own appropriate pay scale. Right. And then products would be priced accordingly. Not to mention if we had a truly free market, I believe almost every white man would probably have a job and we wouldn't have millions of Chinese engineers, Indian engineers, technicians, doctors, lawyers, and a lot of women and other minority types out there working in jobs they don't deserve wouldn't have those jobs. I don't know if, I'm, I'm, I don't know if the American market has ever been um, re- really free in the last 80, 90 years. I don't know. Well, we had a lot of we had a lot of engineered and controlled panics in the closing decades of the 19th century, right. and that helped to lay the foundation for them to make the case that oh, we need a central bank. The Federal Reserve will stop all these panics. Right. And since then, we've never really had anything even resembling a free market. Right. Okay. Regulation of labor supply, which does not include flooding Germany with kaffirs and mestizos. When in the course of the last few years, unemployment disappeared in Germany and turned into an ever greater shortage of labor, it was impossible for the government to view this passively, since otherwise there was a danger that some industrial branches would be compelled to restrict their production. Thus, the government had to regulate labor supply and distribution of labor among the various branches. Labor reserves today in Germany can be secured by the employment of additional female labor, later retirement, and employment of superfluous independent workers as wage earners in industry. But these reserves are relatively small, so the question arises as to how to increase efficiency of labor. But the problem is not that of merely employing more people. It is the employment of people in industries where they are most needed. Thus, it was necessary to take care that in certain industries there was no diminishment of the labor supply. A law was passed recently which makes any change in employment dependent on the approval of the labor office. This law applies to the following branches and industries, agriculture, forestry, mining, excepting coal mining, chemical industry, building industry, building material industry, iron and metal industry. By this, the German government hopes that in these important branches, the especially urgent needs of the state will be covered. Adolf Hitler was, um, well, well, this is a, 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 a um, controlled economy, which was controlled in the interests of the people. They didn't want um, any industry to have an excess of laborers and they had checks and balances in place in their in their regulatory agencies to make sure that that, that was so that that no industry would be short of labor because the necessary industries had to ha- had to be fully manned and that that that's um 
that they used non-draconian methods by which to help assure that. Uh, I mean, they didn't basically force people into any one occupation or another, but but they used bureaucratic and non-draconian methods in order to assure that that every necessary industry would be properly staffed. Adolf Hitler was not... um, he, he was not pro-capital in, 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 in his view of the, the, the relationship between business and labor. He was not pro-capital, and he was not pro-labor, but he was clearly pro-people. And, and he expressed many times in Mein Kampf, I, I don't have an exact, um, a list of exact citations, but he expressed many times in Mein Kampf that the classes were necessary for the proper functioning of society. And and that the classes had always, until the Jew came along, the classes had always functioned together in a spirit of mutual cooperation for the most part. And the existence of Europe throughout the Middle Ages, throughout feudalism, the continued existence of Europe proves that. The ability of, of Christian Europe to repel its invaders, the proof is in the pudding that the feudal system was not as bad as the Jews make it out to be. And, and that's another, even though it's archaic, that's another outside-of-the-box economic system that the Jew has always hated. Well, all the people that talk was, about the, the so-called free market advocates who want a free market, seldom do we ever encounter a situation where there can be a free market. It's always either controlled by bureaucrats, regulators, communists, or it's controlled behind the scenes by schemers sitting in back rooms filled with cigar smoke as they exchange favors and, and money and cronyism and nepotism rules the day. Right. So if there's going to be some sort of control or some sort of direction in an economy, why shouldn't it be for the sake of the people and the nation? Exactly, and, and, and Adolf Hitler was certainly pro-people. I'm going to quote from Mein Kampf pages 35 through 36, and, and I believe that he's using um, the term bourgeois in, in, in accordance with its more classical meaning, the, the, um, the wealthy upper middle class. In, in the Bolshevik Revolution, just about anybody who was ever a property holder, anybody who ever employed another man was automatically labeled as part of the bourgeois, we saw that in the Russian number one report. Right. So if some guy has 20 acres of land and his son and his brother work on his farm, he's bourgeois and he's getting killed. Right. But bourgeois is not a Marxist term. Bourgeois is a French term that the Marxists absconded and, and, and twisted the meaning of for themselves, just like the rest of the Jewish language, right? That, that they twist the meanings of everything. Well, well bourgeois really originally in... in um, French political philosophy referred to the, the richest uh, of the, the, the middle class. The middle class represented the wealthy who, who were not nobles. The noble class was not the middle class, right? On innumerable occasions, this is Mein Kampf, pages 35 and 36. On innumerable occasions, the bourgeois took a definite, a definite stand against even the most legitimate human demands of the working classes. And, and Adolf Hitler is just calling in the injustice as he sees it. He, he was not anti-capital, but he did recognize that, that the bourgeois did create some injustices amongst the working classes in Germany. They took a definite stand against even the most legitimate human demands of the working classes. That conduct was ill-judged and indeed immoral 
and could bring no gain whatsoever to the bourgeois class. The result was that the honest workmen abandoned the original concept of the trades union organization and was dragged into politics. There were millions and millions of workmen who began by being hostile to the Social Democratic Party, but their defenses were repeatedly stormed and finally they had to surrender. Yet this defeat was due to the stupidity of the bourgeois parties who had opposed every social demand put forward by the working class. The short-sighted refusal to make an effort towards improving labor conditions, the refusal to adopt measures which would ensure the workmen in case of accidents in the factories, the refusal to forbid child labor, the refusal to consider protective measures for female workers, especially expectant mothers. All of this was, all this was of assistance to the social democratic leaders. In other words, because the bourgeois would not budge on any of these, that these um, humanitarian issues, well, that, that just helped the, 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 the Marxists basically overthrow them. That's what well, he said. I, I take issue with the child labor area here because for the most part, unions and guilds were at the forefront of that because they didn't want some 12-year-old or 13-year-old showing up at the factory eager to make a name for himself, go the extra mile, work hard, and that he would basically show them up. They would be seen as lazy by comparison. And I've, I've known people who got into construction and the metal working at 13, 14, 15, and they're doing pretty well today because when they entered the field at, you know, age 20 or age 18, they had four or five years' experience under their belt, and they had no trouble well, getting in. exceptions, but child labor, the, the exploitation of children both in England and on the continent, what were um, what was very common, and, and right, so. yeah, you know, child labor was was a it, it was a horror, it was a nightmare in in many places. Well, I'm saying if children want jobs, though, and their family decides that the child should have a job, that option should be open to them, but they shouldn't be forced into an industry by economic circumstances. Well, well the um, child labor was also a big problem in New England. All of this was of assistance to the social democratic leaders who were thankful for every opportunity which they could exploit for forcing the masses into their net. Our bourgeois parties can never repair the damage that resulted from the mistake they then, they then made, for they sowed the seeds of hatred when they opposed all efforts at social reform, and thus they gave at least apparent grounds to justify the claim put forward by the Social Democrats, namely, that they alone stand up for the interests of the working class. And this became the principal ground for the moral justification of the actual existence of the trade unions, so that the labor organization became, the time, from that time onwards, the chief political recruiting ground to swell the ranks of the Social Democratic Party. And, and we saw that same thing here in America in, in, in the... Um, in the labor unions in the 60s and 70s, what, where the Democratic Party was moving rapidly to the left, and the, the, actually the whole political spectrum was shifting to the left, and, and oh, the labor oh, unions here were assisting that. You, you can see how hard the paradigm shift has been in Europe. Most Europeans consider the Republican Party to be fascists and Nazis, where... By any objective standard, the Republicans are center-left and the Democrats are hard-left. 
Exactly. And, and that's the paradigm shift that's occurred in politics all over the Christian world in the last hundred years. And, and the, the, the same Jew is behind that in assistance with the Jewish controlled media. But the, um, the, the, the point of, um, of citing this particular paragraph in Mein Kampf was to demonstrate the labor issues that Adolf Hitler was aware of and sensitive to. And that Germany, what was not the um, what, well the Marxist type state that people say it was, it was actually concerned that the regulation of the labor supply in their economic policy and Hitler's actual real concern with labor issues fully demonstrates that. That's the only point I wanted to make. Right. Increase of production. If you were to ask me what success has been achieved in the sphere of production regulation. I could not do better than to give you a few figures which will show you the extent of the increase of production in Germany. Total industrial production in Germany is today 144% greater than in 1932. Even the peak year of 1929 was exceeded as early as 1936, while today about 30% more industrial goods are produced than in 1929. The production of capital goods has risen much more strongly than has the production of consumption goods, being now four times as great as in 1932 and more than one and a half times as great as in 1929. And you know, the, um, the Austrian crowd, the um, Mises capitalist clique, they love to claim that the politicians who were in power in 31 and 32, just before Hitler came to power, instituted reforms that didn't start to pay off until 33, 34, 35, 36, and that Hitler stole the credit for everything that these free market reformers did, and he didn't really end unemployment. He just drove Germany into unsustainable debt through um, unsustainable deficit spending, and that Germany would have collapsed in the mid to late 40s economically if it hadn't been for the war. And they say that Hitler didn't do anything to turn around the economic situation, and it was all the policies of the other politicians who were, you know, kicked out in 33 that's all just hyperbole though there's there's no basis for that, that fact that's all hyperbole it's all lies it's no propaganda first first national socialist germany was not borrowing money they were printing their own they were doing what the governments in the world in the west should be doing everywhere they were doing what the rothschild bank does and then the rothschild bank and and the other central banks just charges interest so that the debt could never be paid Okay, there was no net, there, there was no deficit there, there was no deficit spending in National Socialist Germany because they were printing money based on their basically what amounts to their gross domestic product. They were printing money based on their labor output, and it was not interest-bearing money, and they weren't borrowing any money. So there's no real deficit spending, right? Well, why should why should you borrow money from a central banker if he's just going to print the money from nothing? And he decides how much he prints. Why don't you just print your own money backed up by the goods your nation's producing? Well, well, absolutely, and that's exactly the way Germany did it. And and basically, the the United States, when it came off the gold standard, used used the same measurement in, in order to gauge its economy compared to the money supply. Except that the Jew is still printing the money and, and charging us interest for it. The central banks were still printing the money and charging us interest for it. So, so it's Adolf Hitler's economy was very viable. Now, as for the um, the, the Weimar Republic and, and their supposed um, economic plan, Adolf Hitler 
that they, in 1932, issued the emergency four-year plan, and it wiped clean all past economic plans. He didn't steal anybody's ideas. The Weimar Republic was borrowing money from a central bank and, and, and um, basically brought Germany into the same economic stagnation that the rest of the West was in during the Great Depression, starting right. in 1929. Well, so, we can look at the entire world at that time, and every single country aside from Germany, Italy, and Japan was basically in a permanent economic crisis, it seemed. No matter what ideas they tried, the Keynesian Social Democrats in Britain and America, the Marxist-Leninist Communists in the Soviet Union, you know, before the um, the Hitler government came to power, the Weimar Social Democrats and leftists, all the policies, all the free market capitalists, whether they were in Europe or North America, their ideas failed. The free market capitalists failed, the hands-off, laissez-faire failed, the social democrats failed, everything failed. It was all Jewish-based. Well, well, of course, and it's always going to fail because it's based on Jewish profits. And usury. Yes, and, and usury has to fail. Usury, any usury-based economy is nothing but a pyramid scheme. You can't, if, you, you know, every dollar created in, in our economy, every dollar that's created automatically demands usury. It automatically demands interest. So that the moment that dollar is created, it demands back a dollar and a penny. Let's use that as an example. Well, how could the debt ever be paid? And, and after a year, it's a dollar and six pennies. And after two years, it's a dollar and 12 pennies. And basically, the company that takes that dollar and puts it to work in capital is only going to pay the interest on a debt, but they could never pay the debt. You can't pay the debt. Now, one company that, that, that has a very high profit ratio might be able to pay its debts, but it's really just passing those debts on to everybody that it does business with because the debt can never be paid. Because for the entire existence of that dollar, it demands more money back than, it, than, than its own value, and, and that's basically, it creates a siphon, right? Right, and the well... the sucking sound isn't going to Mexico. Ross Perot was just an, another clown. The giant sucking sound for 100 years has been going into the, in, into the, the, the banks that control the, the, cent, the, the Federal Reserve and, and therefore the entire economy. Well, as I've said before, with our, our central bank fiat money system, we have to pay a premium on the money they print that we use that we need to engage in commerce. So as soon as they print a dollar, we now owe a dollar. Right, a dollar in debt. A dollar in a decimal. It, it can't be paid back. It can't be paid back you because, pay it back because the decimal doesn't exist, but the, the usurer demands the decimal in return. Right, and in order to make good on that debt, you have to get more money from him, which comes at a premium, so the debt just continues and it never ends. It gets passed well, to the next generation. Every usury-based economy is, is, is just an elaborate Ponzi scheme. That's all it is. And it has to collapse at some point. Well, well it, it has to collapse, but the, the inevitable outcome is that the person who's printing the money that requires usury is basically going to end up owning everything. Right, unless people rise up and take it back. Right, and that's it's what happened better. in Germany. The whole nation rose up, and they said, "Germany for Germans, usury that you know, usurers out, no more usury." What? If you have ten men in a village, and only one of those men—if we think about this on a small scale—only one of those men is allowed to print currency and 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 collect interest on it. 
which is basically what the Federal Reserve is. It, it's, it, it has a um, it has a monopoly on usury. Well, well, only one of those men is allowed to do that, and the other nine men that they accede to that, the inevitable result is that that one man owns everything in the village. Well, I mean, if you if you borrow ten dollars from me, and now a year later you owe me twelve. I'm the only one who can print money. You come to me and say, well, I want to pay you back, but I only have $9. You know, I have less than I borrowed from you. How am I going to get the, you know, I might be able to get $1 back, but we don't have the additional $2. And Well, I'll make you a new loan. The, the scheme perpetuates itself because money doesn't come into the economy unless somebody borrows it. Right. In the fact, money is leaving the economy. It's going into the pocket of the usurer. The only way that money, that new money can come in the, into the American economy is if somebody takes out a loan and then the money is it is created from nothing as soon as the loan is signed on a dotted line so our entire economy is based on lies it's just a, a complex system of smoke and mirrors right basically it's a fraud economy right and and and, and germany uh, i mean currency is the real value of currency is based upon um, an agreement between men as to what that currency is worth. And, and Germany's currency was commensurate with German labor output, and, and that makes it a viable economy. Well, if you notice, too, the transformation, I don't want to digress too much here, but in the last century or two, we've seen a shift where the national heroes and icons used to be inventors, innovators, captains of industry, explorers, people who invented, you know, the repeating rifle, the revolver, the uh, electric light bulb, the internal combustion engine, they were all heroes and national icons. Everybody wanted to be like Edison and Tesla and Colt and Winchester, where today all of our heroes are bankers, money manipulators, stock jobbers, speculators, brokers, lawyers, accountants, and to an extent, I suppose, you know, the, the celebrities, the singers, the entertainers, where... I imagine today there's not a single person on the street in America. You you go into a big city and start asking people, you know, find someone under 30 and ask them, you know, name a, a major inventor today or, you know, name a prominent engineer. Not well, not a historical well, engineer, but name a prominent one today. No, the, the people who actually, actually produce things haven't been louded in society for, for centuries. Or ask people on the street to name a, a Nobel Prize winner in physics or chemistry from the last 10 years. Well, well, increase in production that the um, basically these numbers demonstrate, and, and these numbers are verifiable, and these numbers demonstrate that when the rest of the world was in a depression, Germany's economy was pretty vibrant, and production was, was increasing every year. Right. Continuing on. Progress in the field of domestic raw material production has been even greater. Iron ore production has risen from an average of 843,000 metric tons for the first three months of 1938 to 1,226,000 metric tons in the first three months of 1939. Now, I don't know, would this just be due to increased efficiency or would this also be due to land acquisitions? Since if I'm not mistaken, they acquired Austria in the intervening period. I don't know if they could have folded Austria into their economy that quickly, though. Right. And their bureaucracy, I mean, that, 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 I imagine that that would take a few years, right? This means an increase of 45%. Furthermore, there has been great progress in domestic oil production. In 1938, staple fiber production 
has reached 155,000 metric tons as compared with 5,400 metric tons in 1933 and 102,000 metric tons in 1937. And regarding German iron ore production, after World War I, they lost most of their coal-producing regions to either France or Poland, and they lost most of their iron ore production in Lower Silesia to Poland. And they, they lost almost all their natural resources. Right. Right. I, I, I mean, the land that Poland was was awarded after the World War was very costly to Germany. Right, and it wasn't even historically Polish land. The, the Poles never had Silesia. Right. Or, you know, um, what was it, Hinterpomerania, which they grabbed after World War II. So the Poles today, it's occurred to me that about 50% of Poles are just squatting on German land. And they say, well, the Soviets stole the eastern half of Poland, so that justifies robbing the Germans. So if your neighbor steals your cow, you can go across the street and steal some other guy's chicken? Right. It's Europe is, well, well it's, yet yeah, Europe has been an artificial construct for, for 150 years now. Right. Do you like to take consumption policy? Consumption policy, a number of measures of production regulations, namely all of those which affect production of consumption goods, also influence consumption. When, for example, in the interest of a sufficient bread supply, it is decreed that all bread should contain a certain amount of maize flour. This is felt by each individual consumer. Incidentally, in, the view, in view of the good harvest, this particular measure was abolished on October 1, 1938. The same is true of the changes in the textile field and in other fields where the new synthetic materials are gaining a foothold. And, and let me say that this is kind of like um, egalitarianism, egalitarianism imposed on the food industry. If all bread is required to have a certain amount of maize flour, that, then that means that um, all Germans would have to eat bread with a certain percentage of cornmeal in it or, or corn flour in it. If, um, if the requirement were not made like that, then the people at the lowest rungs of the economic ladder would probably have nothing to eat but bread made from corn flour, right? They'd all be eating tacos. Germans would be eating tacos, basically. That, that's a joke, maybe. Uh, okay. The same is true of changes in the textile field and in other fields where the new synthetic materials are gaining a foothold. The idea of consumption regulation is undoubtedly something completely new to you. Remember, Professor Bauer is addressing a group of American academics, and that's where he originally gave the, the speech, that this talk, which is, what, which is what this booklet consists of. In the economic textbooks and handbooks, nothing will be found on this subject. Of course, the fact that, contrary to general belief, man cannot consume what he desires is as old as the hills. And even today, in the modern economic systems, the individual is subjected to many restrictions in his consumption. In the Middle Ages, there were strict provisions as to the clothing worn by the various classes. Let me say that that goes all the way back to ancient Rome and probably even back further than that. The mercantile countries, that is, the countries of the 17th and 18th centuries, restricted consumption for economic reasons, mainly in order to stimulate home industry and to cut down imports. And if you consider your own position, you will find 
none or only a few restrictions in your consumption as the result of state action. You will remember, of course, some of you will remember, of course, the days of prohibition. But you will probably find greater restrictions in consumption as the result of custom, fashion, habit, social viewpoint, and last but not least, industrial production. It would probably be, probably be very hard for you to secure outside the six to eight different forms of straw hats to be found in almost every shop, one which was especially light and comfortable and in a form designed by yourself. This is nowhere manufactured, and it would be hard for you to find someone to make you a straw hat according to your own design and measure. Industrial hat production, which is rationally based on machine production of hats, will certainly not do it. While on the subject of hats, it would be impossible for you to walk around in America in a round, plate-like felt hat instead of the usual form of felt hat without being laughed off the street. For that would be contrary to American custom and habit. And finally, the fact that each family must spend a certain part of its income on food, the amount being in inverse proportion to the income, is most certainly a restriction, a, a restriction of freedom of consumption, which weighs quite heavily on the individual. As you can see, complete freedom of consumption is a rather doubtful matter. Once you have realized this, it will no longer seem absurd to you when I speak of government consumption regulation. In the authoritarian states, a direction of consumption forms part of the totalitarian claim of the state which subordinates the individual to the higher needs of the nation. The aim of consumption policy in Germany is to increase consumption and thus raise the standard of living of the entire nation, especially that of the working class, to adjust consumption to production and to regulate consumption along national socialist lines. The aims of consumption regulation are partly of a political nature and partly determined by the economic situation. It is far harder to regulate consumption than it is to regulate anything else in the economy. For every measure of consumption policy affects the largest unit, the entire population. A decree concerning the iron ore producing industry affects only a few hundred firms. However, an appeal to the consumer affects 19 or 20 million households with 75 million people. This alone, this fact alone makes special methods of necessary for regulation of consumption. I, meaning Wilhelm Bauer, have hinted at these methods in telling you about the bread supply and textile production. Of a similar nature, a certain limitations imposed upon trade, whereby only a fixed amount is allowed to each customer. As, for example, in a case of fats, in months when there is a shortage, and let me say that during the Roosevelt administration, there were tremendous impositions on consumption to the, on the American people. I, I even mean, in peacetime. Even in peacetime, yes. People were given... Um, Coupons where they could only buy so much bread, so much butter, so much milk. Uh, um, my mother remembers these. My grandmother, who, who passed away recently, used to tell me the stories about how she used to be able to buy butter and, and um, how, the, um, how she gets snuck a little extra butter once in a while by, by, the, by the local creamery. And, and it, it's, um, yeah, they had severe limitations on how much food they could buy in the Roosevelt administration in this country. Well, Roosevelt was really the first out-and-out -out Bolshevik leader, wasn't he? I mean, Wilson was uh, bought and paid for, I think, largely a political whore who just did what um, 
his handlers told him, but Roosevelt was a true believer. If he had been born in the Soviet Union, he'd have been a, a people's commissar for something. <laughs> right, absolutely. The most important means of regulating consumption is publicity. Of course, this method does not guarantee as sure a success as do legal measures, but it has the great advantage that it gives the consumer the feeling that he is doing something of his own free will and that the only pressure exerted upon him is that which is exerted by his conscience. conscience. And Germany had to control consumption to the degree which ensured that there would be enough food for the nation and that they wouldn't have to import any food. And especially in, in, in this time, in the 1930s, I'm sure it was probably pretty difficult to import a lot of foodstuffs. Well, where would they import it from? For political reasons, they wouldn't be able to get much from the British Empire. I mean, right. what are they going to get from America? The Americans are calling them gangsters. And, and the Ukrainians were being starved to death by the policies in Moscow, so they weren't. They were, they were once the breadbasket of Europe, and not at this time. Well, incidentally, though, the Germans had a lot of economic agreements with the Soviets. The Soviets had, you know, a crucial shortage of technology, machine tools, skilled technicians. So the Germans sent industrial advisors and industrial equipment in exchange for huge deliveries of raw materials and food. Is that while the Ukrainians were starving to death? This would be probably, well, I know the Weimar government had a lot of secret agreements with the Soviets, and the um, Third Reich government had agreements that continued up until early 41. Interesting. The Weimar Weimar government, since they were prohibited from developing tanks and aircraft, and they were prohibited from training with artillery and heavy weapons, they weren't allowed to have a general staff. They sent their best officers into the Soviet Union to train there and to work on tank designs in the Soviet Union. Because at the time, the Soviet Union was a pariah state recognized by no one. So the Weimar government figured, well, since the rest of the world won't deal with the Soviets and everyone hates us and they've plundered our industry, we still have our innovation, our creativity, our um, our technological expertise. We'll just go to the Soviet Union and we'll marry our technological expertise to their manpower and their industry. So there was a lot of cooperation, especially in the, the mid to late 20s with the, the Weimar government and the Soviets. And most of it continued during the Third Reich years. Well, well I would expect that cooperation during the Weimar government. I'm not sure, about, you know, I'm, I'm ignorant as to a lot of it in the Third Reich years. I mean, I'm, I'm red in that area, but I'm not that well read. The, um, the Germans traded, for instance, a heavy cruiser for a large amount. It was an incomplete heavy cruiser, I should say. They traded an incomplete heavy cruiser in schematics on the the naval artillery for the heavy cruiser. It was of, I believe, the Admiral Hipper class. It might have been one of the um, the Deutschland class, the one of the pocket battleships. They traded it to the Soviet Union for a large amount of crude oil, foodstuffs, and other raw materials. Well, well, right, and that, that even though it's, well, well, even though in hindsight we understand it may have been a mistake to, for Germany to give Russia technology like that and, and finished goods like that, that's in keeping with their um, desire to export finished goods and import raw materials. Right. They, they were perennially short of raw materials and, and needed them badly. Right. 
well, during the Weimar years, I found a table here in 1927. The Germans imported almost half a billion Reichsmarks worth of material from the Soviet Union. In 1933, it was only 194 million Reichsmarks. And in 1932, German exports to the Soviet Union made up 46% of all Soviet imports. And trade lessened. You know, Germany tried to distance itself from the Soviet Union and become less dependent on Soviet Union to buy their goods. They didn't want to have, you know, the Soviet Union being their major export partner during the, you know, the Third Reich government, but they still did a lot of business with the Soviets. Okay, let's move on to nutrition. Well, before um, we get back from the digression, just let me finish one thought here. I think that Hitler might have been feeling out the Soviets to see if it was possible to come to an understanding with them and to work with them. And ultimately, as we've covered, you know, despite all the agreements, despite all the trade, despite the, the non-aggression pact, the Soviets still betrayed him by promoting a coup in Belgrade, an anti-German, pro-communist coup in Belgrade. They um, bullied, what's the name of that territory, Bessarabia? Out of the um, the Romanians, they bullied Romanians into giving up the northeastern part of Romania. Right. And they um, also they were jockeying for bases on the Dardanelles, which would have been a violation of numerous treaties and accords with the British, the Americans, and the Turks. And they wanted to send a garrison to Bulgaria. And of course, they invaded Finland. So I think in the early and mid, and even into the late 30s, Hitler was still maintaining a lot of the deals with the Soviets, not because he was some Bolshevik or a Marxist like the, the Austrian Mises crowd would say, but because he was trying to uphold agreements that had been made you know, 10 years ago, long-standing agreements, and see if it was possible to coexist with the Soviets. And at every chance, they betrayed him. Well, well, if you look into, into um, I, I don't know, if you look into Adolf Hitler's psyche of, I often thought that it was naivety, but I've come to the conclusion that he, he always tried to seek or, or hope for the best in everybody he dealt with. And that, that, that might be considered naivety. In hindsight, uh, I believe it, it's just a... Um, characteristic of a statesman. It's just a characteristic of a Christian statesman. And that's my personal opinion. I really can't quantify it, but... Um, it, it seems to be, especially in his appeals to the West. But um, right. I, I think he should have never expected anything from the Soviets. Right. So you, you go the wiki, and Hitler's a dictator and a tyrant, but Mao's a statesman, Hoach is a statesman, and Stalin's yeah, a statesman. Yeah, of course. Well, that's the Jewish version of history, which, without a doubt. So, okay, nutrition. And, and, and Germany here, I, I mean... Well, we might think this is draconian, but Germany is actually trying to get its people to eat according to the the, um, the necessities of, of well, well, their physical necessities, but also according to what foodstuffs were available. And in many respects, German concern for the health of its citizens was far ahead of its time. Right. So if you're Especially a coal miner to American policy. If you're a coal miner working 10 hours a day shoveling coal, you might need 3,500 calories a day minimum, where if you're just an academic sitting around doing research or writing books, you might get well, by on 2,100. Right. No 400-pound welfare recipients in, in National Socialist Germany. And, and they're all over America today. Well, America is the only – America, is, it seems, aside from Britain and other Western nations, we're the only nation where the poor are obese, where – 
You go to India and you see a poor person. He's missing a leg. He's blind in one eye, and he's 110 pounds. Well, when I was a kid, poor people were skinny, right? And and today, poor people are are, are four or five hundred pounds. It's incredible. Germany is the unfor- is in the unfortunate position that there is a limit to which those foodstuffs in the consumption of which increases with the rise in income, such as fats, butter, eggs, etc., can be produced or imported. Thus, the aim has been to influence the consumer to use as much as possible those foodstuffs which are abundant in Germany and to use to a less degree those foodstuffs which are not so plentiful or which have to be imported, especially the oils, right, the food oils. At the same time, there was a possibility of directing nutrition in the best ways from the point of view of health. For instance, everything possible was done to convince people that for a great part of the population, for example, those who do not do hard physical labor, a diet too rich in fats is not especially healthy. Somebody should tell Americans that, right? Along the same ideas, great success has been achieved in increasing the consumption of fish. Today, Germany consumes 26.9 pounds per head per annum as compared with 18.7 pounds five years ago. A summary of everything desired in the field of consumption regulation may be found in the food list which the German Institute for Business Research has worked out. The Institute classified the foodstuffs into three groups, those whose consumption should be increased, those whose level of consumption should be maintained, and those whose consumption should be restricted, and the foods that had to be imported fell into that category, right? The foodstuffs concerned are as follows. Consumption to be increased. Potatoes, sugar, jam, skimmed milk, whey cheese, barley, oatmeal, sago, artificial honey, buttermilk, hearts cheese, and Limburg cheese, vegetables grown in Germany, fish, mutton, and rabbits. Consumption to be maintained. Bread and pastry, flour, fruit, lentils, pork, eggs, milk, venison, rice, peas, dried fruits, poultry, cocoa, beans, and honey, and consumption to be restricted, mostly based on Germany's lack of these foodstuffs in in its um, production, beef, veal, butter, lard, bacon, margarine, cooking oils and fats, buckwheat, millet, imported vegetables, and cheese with high fat content. In Germany, we do not have a regular supply of all foodstuffs throughout the year as you do in America. The Institute, therefore, drew up a list of those foodstuffs which are to be especially pushed in certain months. As an example, I shall shall quote two months in January, pork, geese, fish, cabbage, root vegetables, fruit and vegetable conserves, and in September, mutton, poultry, mushrooms, pickles, tomatoes, beans, salads, spinach, plums, pears, and apples. Personally, I wouldn't consider pork and pork products a foodstuff, of course. However, I would like, but but you can't separate a German from his pork sausage, right? To continue with Bauer. However, I would like to emphasize that these are not the only goods which may be consumed, but the public is to be educated to adjust its diet to conform more or less with the fluctuations in the supply of certain foodstuffs. Publicity to this end is not carried out by the Institute for Business Research or by the government directly, but by organizations like the Reich Food Estate. 
and private companies. So, so this, this wasn't draconian measures to encourage people to eat um, foods that were readily available domestically. That They basically did it through volunteerism. Another measure serving the same purpose as the anti-waste campaign, the purpose of this is clearly to be seen in its name. Well, you know, this is um, rather funny. It's a bit of a digression, but Ceausescu in Romania in the late 70s and into the 80s became obsessed with paying off the country's debt because he'd accrued, you know, $15, $20 billion in debt. So they started exporting huge amounts of food out of Romania, and he called for, a quote, a sensible eating program. He accused his people of being fat and risking obesity and being overweight and lazy and they, they severely limited the amount of food you could get in Romania to the point where a lot of people were probably only getting 1,800, 1,900 calories, maybe 2,000 calories a day, and a lot of them were working in heavy industry. So when, when people want to talk about rationing, the Germans weren't rationing because they were stealing food from people and exporting it. They were rationing because it was a, it was a sensible program. Well, well, right, absolutely. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a lot of manipulation in, in food consumption done here in the United States, and I don't even know how many people realize it. I do not have the tools required to do a proper study of it. However, I can't believe that it should cost twice as much to raise a lamb as it does a steer. But the price of lamb is and, and mutton is incredible. It's off the scale. A lot of that could have to do with the fact that maybe there just aren't a lot of people in this country raising lamb, but I know, I believe, in the Falkland Islands, in New Zealand, and in Australia, and in, in the British Isles, a lot of people raise lamb and sheep. And if they're importing lamb meat from the Falklands, it's going to be pretty pricey because of transportation costs. Well, well I did see, in, when I was in upstate New York the, the last four years, I did see quite a few people raising sheep. But the price is still astronomical, and they were making good money on it selling it to the to the Jews down in the city, right? And and the Muslims down in the city. They weren't selling it locally. And and when they did, it there was no break on it compared to the supermarket lamb, none whatsoever. Even though it was locally grown. In fact it was usually more expensive. That now the the, the difference, the disparity in, in the um in the supermarkets between the price of beef and the price of pork is even much greater than the difference between the price of beef and the, and, and the price of lamb, which is a lot more expensive than beef. It, if um, I, I mean, I can't get a decent a, a decent steak for under ten or eleven dollars a pound, twelve dollars a pound. You get it on sale; it's maybe six or seven a pound. But I know the steak has gone up about two to three hundred percent in the last five years. That now ground beef, ninety-two um, percent ground beef is like seven dollars a pound. But you could buy pork tenderloin. I've seen it for a dollar seventy-nine a pound. Right, pork is just a dime a dozen. But I haven't bought pork in. I, I don't believe. Like years. I would wonder what they're feeding the swine if it costs four or five times more to raise a steer that eats grass for the most. I mean, for the most part. You know, I, I've heard people that raise pigs that say anything that's even resembling a creature, you know, they throw a rat in a pig pen and the pigs just die well, well, on it and devour it. Anything. Pigs will eat anything, but they must be feeding them anything to be able to sell them for, for 20% of the price of beef. Well, that, that's my point, right? I don't eat pork. I don't eat any pork, but it, it's, um, 
to, to see the disparity between the price of beef and the price of pork makes me wonder what they're feeding the swine. Right. Well, you know, they'll grind up dead pigs and feed them to other pigs. And pig yeah. used to be, you know, pork used to be my favorite food. And someone proved the validity of the food law. I mean, I just stopped eating it that day. Well, well absolutely. Okay, other fields of consumption. The problems of consumption regulation in other fields are just as great as those in the field of foodstuffs. It is well known that Germany must import the greater part of the raw materials required for the manufacturers of textiles, shoes, etc., as a result of the considerable rise in income in the course of the last five years. The demand for these goods has increased greatly. Thus, there arose the danger that consumption would exceed production possibilities, since it is impossible forcibly to restrict the consumer in this field that this isn't Soviet Russia, right? The aim was, mainly by means of publicity, to direct consumption in those paths where there was practically no limit to consumption possibilities. Therefore, consumption was directed to all such services as travel, theater, sport, Diora. And, and I'm not sure what Diora are. I think he means vacations, but I'm not positive. That's, a, that's an educated guess. The introduction of the low-priced popular car also means the direction of consumption to a ware which can be produced in quantities sufficient to meet demands. Of course, sometimes it may not have tires. That's a joke, right? Of course, publicity is not in itself sufficient, for it is precisely in those fields of consumption where the consumer feels himself free that it is hardest to get him to use his money for the things which it is desired that he buy. Therefore, publicity has been effectively supported by price reductions of all kinds. Here, too, the low-priced popular car is the best example. This will cost about 1,000 Reichmarks and will be much cheaper than any other car. Moreover, the low-priced popular radio set has promoted purchases in this field. This is being continually improved and reduced in price. The Reichsbahn, the German state railroad, has established reduced fares for all trips to all large exhibitions, such as the automobile exhibition, the radio exhibi exhibition, sports meetings, etc., so that people can take advantage of these occasions. So, so Germany's planned economy it is basically... It, this is 1939 and fully demonstrates that Germany was nothing like a Marxist state. It was basically um, based on free choices by the consumer, but the state sought to guide the consumer into choices that would um, not damage Germany's standing in world finance. And, and all of this wrapped up together more than proves by itself Germany was um, had absolutely no designs to conquer the world, right? Uh, I mean, that's the, the the Jewish propaganda is just in, incredibly blatantly untrue. And not to mention, you you pointed out Germany is certainly not a Marxist economy. Not only that, it doesn't fit the picture painted by the Mises crowd. It's not a nation on the verge of collapse. Right, absolutely not. Would you like to read the last part? Organized consumption. Organized consumption. A special field in consumption regulation is the organization of consumption which is carried out by the large political units, especially the German labor front. Here, political and social aims correspond to economic aims. Everything is being done to influence the worker to spend his income as much as possible 
for such things as mean a substantial rise in his standard of living and as little as possible for such things as burden the German foreign exchange balance. Where today that's not happening in the U.S. We're not increasing our standard of living. We're buying crap we don't need, and we're buying so much of it we have to rent storage lockers to store all the stuff. Our standard of living has to be going down. I, 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 it, it has to be going down. I haven't seen the, um, the, the official government statistics. I'm sure they're wise. Well, I've actually checked the data. Even the, um, even the Austrians, they call the government to task on it. Purchasing power in this country is now at the level where it was around 1960. And in terms of you know, real purchasing power, we have not increased. You know, despite the fact that wages are nominally increasing, with the rate of inflation being about 15 to 16% a year. I've been saying this since 2007, that we were at about 15 to 16% inflation. And finally, all the, um, the mainstream conservative experts who are on the fringe, you know, they're as conservative as you can be without being guys like us. They're finally coming out and saying inflation is 16% a year and standard of living has decreased in, the, in this country for pretty much the last decade. Right. It's, okay. it's at an all-time low for this generation anyway. Through organization, it is possible to affect price reductions, and these price reductions are to make it possible for the worker to do those things which formerly only the better situated classes were able to afford. The main factor in the field of organized consumption is the organization Kraft Dirk Freude, Strength Through, through Joy. The following figures and examples show what has been done. Up to 1937, 9 million German citizens had taken journeys and walking trips. The following were taken at a random from a list of 350 vacation trips from Berlin, which have been arranged for the period from May to September 1938. A two-week trip to Upper Bavaria costs 60 to 50 Reichsmarks, while an eight-day stay on the Baltic coast costs only 31 Reichsmarks, and a 16-day trip to East Prussia but 41 Reichsmarks. These costs include everything, railroad, fare, room and board, trips, etc. In the last theater season, 1937 to 38, the Strength Through Joy arranged 7,000 theater performances, where today people go on a meaningless cruise on a ship that will probably break down because it's run by a Jewish company and they don't do any maintenance. It'll break down in the Caribbean. They'll spend six or $7,000 for a five-day cruise, and they'll spend the next 10 years paying it off. And you'll get some horrible disease while you're there. <laughs> right. And, and, and what, what is a cruise, really? I mean, my mother enjoys cruises, and I told her, I tell you what, you give me $1,000, I'll stand outside a hotel, you know, a Motel 6 or whatever. I, I won't let you out for a week. You can stay in there. You can come out to use the pool, but you don't leave the grounds of the hotel. That's basically what a cruise is. It's an overpriced floating hotel. I don't know. It's not within the, ground, it's not within the bounds of my personal experience, and, and I don't plan on it. Right, I'm not going on a cruise. It's just not happening. For the workers on the auto highways alone, some 7,000 concerts and entertainments were arranged. In the last four years, 34 million people have participated in the evenings of culture and entertainment arranged by the organization. Uh, I'm going to butcher this. Fira Bend, which I might translate into English as the evening off. Seven million have taken part in sport exhibitions, gymnastics, games, etc. On the island of Rügen, a large seaside resort is being constructed, which will offer 20,000 an opportunity for recreation and rest. Sea trips take German workers to Portugal, Madeira, Norway, and Italy. By the end of 1937, over 180,000 had made such trips. 
Recently, the German labor front launched its own ships, the Wilhelm Gustloff and the Robert Ley, which were especially built and fitted for such sea trips. Should I mention as an aside where they got the name for the ship Wilhelm Gustloff? Do you think What's that's that? not too far outside the scope of this program? Wilhelm Gustloff was a national socialist activist in Switzerland. A Jew knocked on his door. His wife invited him in. He said he had business to discuss with Mr. Gustloff. She invited him into the parlor and said that her husband would be with the man shortly. He came in a moment or two later. The Jew then produced a weapon, shot Mr. Gustloff repeatedly, and basically just walked outside and waited for the police to get him. He said he had to do it because Wilhelm Gustloff was a hater. Germany wanted Gustloff's killer extradited so they could put him to death. The Swiss said that they would give him a life sentence. They sentenced him to life in prison. But then World War II broke out. The um, war eventually turned against Germany, and they released Gustloff's killer, I think, in 44, in late 44, on the condition that he leave Switzerland and never return. So then he went to Israel. So basically he served five or six years in prison for murdering somebody. And became a minister of parliament in Israel. Right. So that, that's what happens to Jewish killers, where if you're somebody who might have been standing guard at a detention camp 80 years ago. They're going to track you down even if you're an auto worker in Cleveland and you were never in that country. Right. Okay, let's wrap this up. It is planned to build about 20 steamers for this purpose. The comfort and living conditions in that ship are but little different from those in the great liners. Just as on the great luxurious liners, so on the Wilhelm Gustloff and the Robert Ley, you can have your daily bath in fresh water, enjoy running hot and cold water in your cabin, drink ice water, swim in a large pool, play in the sports room, enjoy all the deck games, and dance in the evening or attend some entertainment. But since it's not a Jewish-run company, you don't have to worry about hitting an iceberg and sinking. The land trips which are taken are not different from those arranged by the North German Lloyd or by the Hamburg America Line. Yet the whole three weeks only cost the sum of 158.37 Reichsmarks, including the railroad trip from Berlin to Genoa and the railroad trip from Hamburg to Berlin. The usual rule is that only those workers are allowed to take these trips whose income is not over 300 Reichsmarks per month. Most of the participants indeed earn less than 200 Reichsmarks monthly. All these possibilities of organized consumption, which each year include more people, lead to the fact that the standard of living in Germany cannot be ascertained by the usual methods and also leads, I would like to say in closing, to the fact that the standard of living in Germany cannot be compared statistically with that in other countries. Therefore, when you read any statistics about the standard of living in Germany, you yourselves will have the impression after hearing about these trips that these figures do not give the right picture since the standard of living in Germany is affected by a number of things which cannot be shown by statistics. So National Socialism ensured that the German worker got nice vacations, nice affordable vacations. And, and, and they all had the ability to, to attain those nice affordable vacations. I don't remember seeing anything about that in, concerning the proletariat when we read Russia number one. Well, I think the proletariat, the, a lot of them got a nice vacation to Siberia. Siberia, that's it. Beautiful. They got to, they got to spend five years, all expenses paid in Siberia. Beautiful, scenic Siberia. You know, the, the, the um, gold mines and the coal mines in Kolmaya. And, and then, of course, the Polish officers, they got a vacation to Katyn. Well, this, uh, I, I hope this review of German economic policy and, and, and Germany, you know, that this, that this 
talk given by Wilhelm Bauer in front of a group of American academics and 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 university professors that this that they had nothing to hide i, I mean germany was fully accessible by these people that there's that there's no reason to lie about any of this policy there's no reason that germany had to misrepresent any of this and and they probably wouldn't get away with misrepresenting any of it in 1939 right and you know uh, germany was a fairly open society at the time you what? could go there and get economic data talk to people if i were an american and somehow i managed to get into the soviet union i go to moscow and i go to the um, people's commissar for internal affairs right. or i go to the nkvd show trip you would get a very controlled show trip you would be spoon-fed information that they wanted in the american newspapers and you would be sent back that was the russian policy ever since the bolshevik revolution Right, and they probably wouldn't allow me in if they knew I was uh, a person of, shall we say, conservative leanings or right-wing leanings. But if I'm pre-approved and they know I'm a, a useful idiot, a Grover Fur, a dishonest liar who's going to run cover for their crime ring, well, they'll bring me in and they'll give me VIP status for a week. Useful stooges in the American media enabled the, the Soviets, enabled the Jews to destroy Tsarist Russia. There's no doubt. The... um. I hope we just established that Adolf Hitler was not a Marxist, that National Socialist Germany was a a um, not a capitalist society in the sense of Jewish usury, but it was definitely a society which was all for capital being in private hands and free enterprise amongst its people. Their economy was controlled in the national interest and it was by no means dictatorial control, and it was by no means a Marxist society, period. And, and anybody who thinks that it was any of those things is simply ignorant. And, and that's a shame because in that ignorance, you assist the Jew. That's all you do is assist the Jew who wants to keep us all contained in the box in which the Jew has added Capitalism, libertarianism, and, and and American conservatism, and and um, and and their own Marxism and and communism, and as long as you argue within the paradigms that the Jew has put into that box, then you will always be of assistance to the Jew. You will always be a useful stooge. Adolf Hitler had the answers for Germany. And the Saxon races of America and, and England were all the more happy to destroy him on behalf of world Jewry. Well, basically what we see with the conservatives, the, the libertarians, and the socialist types, we see a professional wrestling match. It doesn't matter who wins. It's all scripted anyway, and it's not even real. And no change is going to come about from it. No doubt. Okay. Thank you for joining me, and praise Yahweh. We, we will be here... Um, I forget which number it is, but we will be here next Saturday, Yahweh willing, what was the final segment addressing oh. Clayton Douglas in our series against the Paul Bashers. I'd just like to take the time, too, to say that, you know, the Austrian economist, Dr. Yuri Maltsev, he gave a lecture in 2012 where he stated, quote, Hitler's hero was Karl Marx and that Goebbels said the two most important people informing his ideology were Hitler, followed closely by Karl Marx, and that in Mein Kampf, 
Hitler even said that Marx was a great figure and that he based his entire economic philosophy and worldview on Marxism and on Karl Marx and the Communist Manifesto. So I emailed Dr. Maltsev asking him if we read the same version of Mein Kampf because that's nowhere in the version I have, the Murphy edition. And I asked him, you know, did he actually read the book or is he just taking someone's word on it or is he just making things up as he goes? And I have yet to receive a response, but I have invited him to do a program with the two of us, and he has yet to respond. Well, well, you know, the lies of the Jew have always relied upon the ignorance of Christians. There's no doubt. So, Open your Bible, read your Bible, and and deal with the Jew no more. Right, but somebody who lived in the Soviet system and then defected after recognizing how bad the Soviet system was has to understand a few things about Jews. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me. I will be here next Friday night with my presentation on the book of Acts, chapter 8. Good night. Yahweh bless. Thank you. Yahweh bless.